Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. It is Friday. It's May the 12th. I have with me Mike Benz. He is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary at the United States State Department. He is the founder of the Freedom, or sorry, it's the Foundation for Freedom Online. He is an incredibly busy guy. He's running around in between a move. He happens to be in Austin, so I brought him into the studio here. This is our first in-studio interview and he's also kind of a wild man. We've done a bunch of Twitter spaces together. And every single time I hear Mike go, it's like an explosion of knowledge on people. So I'm just figuring I'm holding on to the reins of a wild Mustang here and trying not to explode your minds as we have kind of an interesting discussion about internet censorship, about the work he does over there, maybe a little bit what he saw at the State Department. My thought is this. We're talking about uh, when did it start that you saw? How bad was it? And how bad can it get? That's kind of thing. Welcome to the show, buddy. Thank you, Kyle. And we're all learning from you along the way, too, with all of your revelations. So. It, it's terrible. So we got coffee here. If you are not caffeinated, you need to get caffeinated immediately because this is going to probably, like I said, push the limits. We got the, uh, we got the cups going here already. Um, folks in the live chat, I'll see some of your stuff. So thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we're excited to have you on here. And I don't have a script. Like, Why don't you tell people kind of where you came up, where you grew up, how you ended up as a political appointee at the State Department, because that seems like a relevant piece. Yeah. I'm going to have you pull that mic just a sure. little closer yeah. if you can. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, yeah, so I uh, grew up in suburban Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, went to law school out in L.A. Um, I was in D.C. briefly. I sort of graduated from law school around that time when the financial crisis happened, so... Uh, I did uh, a little bit in D.C. before moving to New York and practicing uh, practicing law in the in the tech space. Uh, did you say the tax space in the tech tech? Oh, tech. tech! I was going to say, yeah, that's not media. very exciting, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, so I came into this the censorship field mostly because I was really passionate about chess as a kid. Um, I sort of came of age as a semi competitive chess player as a kid. Uh, right around the time that Gary Kasparov uh, lost to Deep Blue. And there were all these little chess engines that you could play, you could use to analyze games. And there were a lot of these purists in the chess world who thought that uh, you know humans would never lose to machines or certainly not the world champion. Right. And uh, so I was introduced to – I never – it always seemed like the, the writing was on the wall there with, with artificial intelligence. And so – I began playing around with like AI chess engines a lot as a kid. I spent a lot of time on them. And then uh, in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, uh, I saw that there was work being done to develop artificial intelligence-powered engines to analyze speech online for purposes of hate speech, targeted abuse and harassment. This is sort of proto-misinformation. Right. And I looked at that and I said, Okay, this is the end of the world. Um, Clearly, this, this is like because it was the end of the ch- of of the the romantic period of chess when AI hit, if you will. Yep. You know, it completely changed the way people thought of it, and then uh, so I became obsessed basically from 2016 uh, until my my time in government um, with with trying to understand how it's possible that people could think that this was a good idea to to use 
artificial narrative AI powered narrative mapping for the purpose of of taking down speech and then um, so there was a, there was a video on Twitter today that I saw and it's Tim Pool actually just retweeted it and it's uh, Boston Robotics you've seen this or Boston Dynamics is yeah, that what they're I, called oh the the robot dogs the, they're dancing oh yeah there's two robots that are you know humanoid and a robot dog and they're all dancing and he goes we're all going to look back at this really fondly when we're killing these mach- machines <laughs> in the streets right and right. I, and my response is it's like the T100 is a dancing dog right. the T800 kills without mercy I'm pretty sure we all grew up with the with the Terminator movies yeah did you see I, <laughs> there's I, no I, good way this this doesn't end ever well right you know and i mean i saw one with those you know they're, they're training them to do like hand-to-hand combat and like flips nimble. yeah like ninja moves and they're landing it like they're doing wild jumps that you and i could never do not on our best day that the best gymnasts in the world are able to pull off with a springboard only and they're doing it on just you know regular walking surfaces right and that's for pure machine i mean i'm seeing things now that i don't know if you saw on the news just a couple of days ago this ai girlfriend uh makes facial expressions knows it like says don't say mean things to me well it's even wild so what's really funny in the chess world with ai is there was a period where you know nobody could compete as as like just um an organic chess player um but this was before there was like one or two dominant engines so all these different engines had different outputs, and there was a period that was known as chess DJing, where a human, where the best performance were like humans DJing, if you will, different kinds of chess engines to spit out the best move. Uh, so it would generate like a couple of possibilities, and the human would choose between like yes. what these best options were. I think yes, exactly, exactly. It's a hybrid model, exactly. Okay, so I think that's what we're entering right now in the AI space. So like for example, it's like the mech warrior suit, right? Like the the machine can yeah, do a lot yeah. of the work, but you have to kind of. Right, exactly. But the, with the I don't hate that as much. <laughs> but here with the AI girlfriend, so this is actually sort of an innovation on the sort of, you know, um, like chatbot stuff. There was a girl who recently trained her own voice on like hundreds of hours of her, like her own. She basically, you know, you can create these, um, you know, m- any voice you want. You can now like simulate. Um, I think Eleven Labs is, is the company that's doing this. You know, you could do. Trump, you could do Schwarzenegger, you could do you. You can just uh, create because it basically takes all of your different speech dynamics and you know syncs it into tone, timbre, pitch, cadence, um, diction. And so she she trained hundreds of hours. I think she's an OnlyFans model, of course. And what else would she be? <laughs> but this is an incredible innovation that I think is like, just like there uh, we've been talking about the existential threat to like the Western world with free speech. This is now like about to hit the dating market because this girl now is selling, uh, basically an AI chatbot version of herself. Why not? W- why not? Because. So- Yes. So you could already buy like models of famous uh, people's uh, sexual organs, right? Right, that exists. Right. So now, why wouldn't we take it to like just take their personality and assign it to this this piece of plastic and latex? Right. <laughs> Except like yeah. you can, it's like this Blade, you know, the latest Blade Runner. It with is. The, like we're we're approaching that. Um, in in a way, you know, everyone, it, it it there's this hype train, you know, where in a sense we've been talking about this for like decades. But a lot of this stuff is is now you can you can see it and taste it that we're on the cusp of something that will change the very fabric of our society. Right. And one of the well, things, here's the thing. We were talking about it forever. Right. But, but, now, we, but, but, but apparently we didn't take the warnings because the warnings were all like this kills you in the end. Well, <laughs> right. Right. But, but I think part of this because we, we talked about it for so long and then nothing happened. And then we sort of like let our guard down a little. And now it's like. 
it's happened. But I don't know that it's all it's all for the worst. Um, you know, there, there's obviously always an upside if it's used responsibly, and then it's always somebody who doesn't use it responsibly. And then Miles Dyson has to die, right, in, in the building, like holding holding right. the, the detonator. Right. And the problem is, like, you know, we have, like, an Orwellian hellscape being organized by our own federal government in order to weaponize this for the purpose of, like, controlling every political outcome in the world, which so is that, where I come into Which is where you come into the play. So, all right. So, folks understand the kind of the backstory. You're uh, an attorney by trade. You got fascinated with chess. I love that. Then you're in New York. How did you get? It was the Trump administration that picked you up, yeah, right? How did right. how do you even get to be a political appointee? Having worked in the federal government and applying for eighteen and twenty months, I have no idea how people get politically appointed to some of the maybe not cabinet level positions, but below that. Like, what yep. does that look like? Yep. So I started out working for uh, Dr. Ben Carson at HUD as his uh, speechwriter and as a economic policy advisor. On uh, on some of the tech and real estate stuff. Part of my legal background was on was on tech. I also did some real estate, and I also did a lot of like financial work. So, um, so I thought it was an interesting hybrid role uh, that I applied for in like 2018 ish, um, and then uh, from there I got called up to the White House to do speech writing for Trump, and part of my portfolio on speeches was uh, was tech, you know. Tech, big tech, sure, um, and national security, and so I, you know, I was trying to tell everybody in the White House that, you know, internet censorship was, you know, not only the most existential threat to the campaign, but you know, literally to Western civilization, and you know, I was sort of in that order. It turned out to be the case, right? right? Because obviously, it went after Trump in you know the political machine, and then now we're starting to see it spill into the rest of the space, or at least the information about it is leaking to everybody else. We're all kind of learning about it, right? And how bad it really was. <laughs> right, right, right. No, there's still there's still much to unearth there. But the but the plain fact is is by that point you already had millions of people who were being censored in ways large and small. Um, it was already so extensive by by 2020, and I was just amazed because you know the speechwriting office on on uh, you know in, in the White House is right next to the digital strategy office. And I used to walk by his digital strategy office every day and say, "What are you, what are you doing? Like, what is your job? Don't you see what's happening with the uh, you know with the tech companies? Don't you see that you can't even post about an in process election on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube?" And you know, it, there was a big conflict at the time because Trump had just declared MAGA to stand for Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon because you know they needed. Look, it's not easy to be president. I'm sure. Yeah, there's. At the time, the the Nasdaq and the Dow were being driven by the huge revenues of the tech companies. Sure. You know, they you know to to crack down on them would be to sort of kill the golden goose of the economy. That was a big part of Trump's reelection campaign. Sure. Um, and at the time, it had not yet hit the upper echelons of the Trump campaign. You know, they they you know the tech companies all went out after his base, all went after the little people, and then you know, medium-sized influencers and some large-sized ones. But it was not until Trump himself got, uh, you know, started not being able to tweet, you know, his own opinions and started getting the, you know, there's this period before he was banned from Twitter where he was getting auto-fact-checked, you know. There was there would be these warning labels on everything he and that's AI generated. It's got to be because nobody was watching. Well, there probably were people watching in real time too. It was AI. He probably had his own sensors. Right, right. No, that's (laughs) it was it was AI generated for um uh for anyone who talked about mail in ballots at the uh 
you know, they, they use this sort of toxicity threshold analysis to trigger, uh, there's something called remove, reduce, and form, which is the, all the platforms have this shared sort of three-tiered censorship model, where remove is banning, that's like the harshest. Mm -hmm. uh, inform is like the lowest, and that's affixing a fact check label. And then reduce is this vast middle area of, you know, throttling, shadow banning, ghost banning, recommendation banning, banning yeah, all, all, all the stuff that people are yes, familiar with if right. they're relatively conservative on any of these platforms right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they've all experienced that sort of de-boost in whatever way it is right, right right yeah that's sort of the batman's like tool but utility belt of all the different tricks they can play sure to, you know um to ban you without to throttle you without you knowing it which is a funny story itself actually because the censorship industry was obsessed with stopping this thing they called the martyr effect it, it, when they started playing around with internet censorship in, in 2017 at a mass scale they quickly found that censorship backfired when people knew they were being censored. Right. And so... That's the Streisand effect, essentially. Right, yes. And what do, you, yes. what do they call it? They call it the martyr effect, which is, which is when somebody knows... When somebody is held up as a martyr, when, when somebody is, is seen to be being censored, um, other people look around and say, oh, you're, you're persecuting this person. And now I want to watch them. Right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, and so there was a ton of government money that actually went into research to stop the martyr effect. Um, and the federal government was federal paying for government. It. Yes. Yes. <laughs> DARPA grants were going into this national science foundation grants oh uh, because they said the problem. So this is before, you know, censorship is because it was, it was very crude in its early stages. You know, they would just, you know, it, it, and it was in, this was before the norms of our society shifted to tolerate censorship. I mean, at the time it was so anathema to the American experience. Yeah, nobody wants that. Right. Well, nobody wanted it, but now it's become, you know, as an ideal, we are now negotiating for it in a way that we weren't, you know, because the entire national security state from 1991, when the World Wide Web came out to 2016 was totally behind internet freedom. You know, the DOD was behind it. They funded all of the internet anonymity software, you know, Tor, and, and encrypted chats. Which people don't realize there's like such a heavy hand of government and all this stuff. All the encryption platforms, those were VPNs, all government ideas. All of that was funded by the US government, by the State Department, the Defense Department, and the intelligence community, because we thought it was very useful to be able to afford free speech to dissident groups that we were backing overseas. In other places, when right. When we wanted to overthrow a foreign government. But take, take a coffee break, by all means. Like, oh, keep, yeah, keep it going. <laughs> Definitely drink some coffee. I'm gonna look over here and see if our chat's still moving along. Looks like they are good to go, folks. It's hard for us to read from here, so we'll just keep carrying on. But if there's something wild, I'll, I'll look over there. Um, so, so U.S. government funding all of this sort of technology in order to hide information, right? Because we wanted to be able to secure dissidents overseas. Now it's come home to roost, and they realize they don't really like it going on over here because other what well, first other foreign actors can use them right. in some probably smaller right. than they act like it is. But people that are, you know, so when I was at the FBI, they were declaring people anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremists, which was a new tag to me. I was like, oh, my God, that's everybody. Right. That's everybody well, that it, thinks like anybody who doesn't trust the government, which is basically everybody that has their eyes open and works for the government. Right. right. And then also every sort of patriotic military guy looks around and goes like, yeah, the government's terrible. That's because I work for them. I know. Yeah. And you've got a, right. even a, a higher view from a political appointed thing. You had dozens of people working underneath you. And you could see how dysfunctional it is. Plus, you're walking by the hallway where they're not paying attention to the right. threat. No, no, that's exactly right. You know, so when I was at state, 
So I ran three departments there, um, all related to various aspects of like U.S. internet policy, essentially. So I was sort of like the cyber czar, if you will. There was okay. a, you know, the, there was the, you know, basically sort of a, a a diplomatic security office, which just involved, you know, all the 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 foreign policy dynamics of you know low earth satellites and working with SpaceX folks and such I like that you're just throwing and, out all these like very very intense topics like they're light. Well. <laughs> What's so funny is like so. Th- then there was the 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 bilateral affairs was just like our individual foreign policy on on, on tech uh, vis-a-vis individual comp- uh, countries or regions like China, and that's where you know what you were just talking about, where you've got like a foreign threat in the information space or on you know if if you can change the the norms of uh, of platform governance, you know, in on, on in a certain territory or in a certain country or in a certain body like the international telecommunications union you can shift the chessboard favorably to the u.s empire essentially okay but then the, the third one was the multilateral affairs which is basically the u.s government's work with the tech sector you know this is we use as our foreign policy battering ram these the tech companies they are our sort of like mini i don't want to say government agents that's like uh being a, a bit glib here but in the same way that exxon and chevron you know, uh, uh, helped the U.S. State Department develop a footprint in the Middle East and South America. You know, our national champions are said to be good for us because they you know, American jobs and we can export to those countries. You know, we can cheaper products, more more markets, more wealth to the American people is sort of the idea of it. So you're but, saying that, that the tech companies are sort of a tool of statecraft exactly. in the same way that the Israelis have certain cyber warfare tools and stuff like exactly. that. And they wield those two. It's like, hey, we'd love to help you. But also, you know, this is what we bring to the table. And it happens to be this this suite right. of things. Right. No, that's okay. that's exactly it. They're instruments of statecraft. And there's a favors for favors relationship between the State Department, who is sort of the quarterback of the inner the inner agency if you will i mean technically the national security council sits on top mm-hmm. but they're not at the operations level you know they're the, the state department is sort of the operative quarterback of what the dod is doing what the ic is doing yep um you know what usaid is doing what you know national endowment for democracy and all the ngos are doing this is all the monies that we're putting mm-hmm. into the the yep. and in the various different ways that we move money into other countries yeah and the cutouts you know because so much of you know, civil society is what the, you know, we, we term it, but, you know, so much, you know, when we're operating in a foreign country, we, we build up a robust civil society sector there, you know, meaning, you know, we functionally control their universities, their, you know, their, their academics, their nonprofits, their foundations. Did, their did you know that before you were at state? Did you understand all of that? Yeah, I was pretty wise to it. I okay. mean, this is, this is one, you know, one of the reasons that I, I now what I saw there was, uh, you know, sort of, uh, a, a step beyond, but I wouldn't say that it was an entirely, you know, new paradigm. There, you know, the reason that I there was I sort of got in there after a certain power struggle that you know they wanted somebody from Google to have that have that job, somebody from Google Jigsaw, which happens to be the very locus is actually the sort of birthplace of the censorship industry. Which yeah, is, I want the opposite of Google in charge from the government end yeah, of it. I, yeah. Like you, you never you never want like the the attack dog run by another attack dog. That seems yeah. like the worst case scenario. You need Cheney a leash. Pick. So there was, there was this big power struggle between the White House and like Liz Cheney on who to fill this. This, this is who was with. fighting it? Yeah, yeah. She's wonderful. Oh, she's great. 
we need to send her a oh Christmas God. card this year. Okay, so that's good though. But that's the power dynamic struggle that was happening. And then tell me if you saw this too, because when I, I was only over at state a couple of times, I had you know like an IC community badge, so mm-hmm. I could walk over there. Right. But I never did. And the few times that I did, we went over to like China Desk, and I think I went to Russia Desk yeah. one time. And they were all staffed by ethnically Chinese people who were born in China. And then I don't know about the Russians. They were either like first generation or, or also born in Russia. Mm-hmm. What is that? Is that common on all the, the country desks or is that just those two? That's a good question. Um, you know, I can imagine. And, with and does chi- that concern you is the other question. <laughs> I can imagine with the China uh, story that because of how, and actually even with the Russia, you know, there is something to language. Like one of the For things sure. that both the censorship industry and a lot of the, the folks that I work with at, at state were concerned about was a, you know, a, per, a perceived shortage of peop, of good people versed in non-romance language, you know, basically anything outside of, you know, Western English, European yeah, languages. Right, exactly. Right. Um, because, you know, when you're dealing with a different alphabet, you know, when you're dealing with an entirely different, um, you know, Mandarin is not something you, you, if you speak a little bit of Spanish, you speak a little bit of Portuguese and you speak a little bit of French, you know, yes. you, um, uh, that's not the case with Russian and it's not the case with Chinese. And, you know, there is a lot of, Mm. There is there is a lot of energy poured into poaching folks um, and cultivating sort of emerging leaders in in foreign countries. So the mere preponderance um, does not, on its face, cause me concern. It would be if that was combined with um, you know a, a very real counterintelligence dossier. You know, in in, in addition to it. Um, but frankly, I just think that the foreign policy on, on, on those, both of those countries has been so misguided that it could be totally organic <laughs> because it seems so systemic and like so <laughs> suicidal for the American, you know, uh, prosperity project that. Yeah. We're not you know, working in our own best interests almost all the time is what it looks like. Yeah. It's, and, and, and that comes from all the sectors. So like I was over at DOE. Uh, Department of Energy. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to struggle not to use acronyms when I speak on here because not everybody comes out of the yeah, government right. buildings. But um, you know, when you look over and you go, we're funding projects with a Chinese professor with National Science Foundation money, millions of dollars, yep. and then he's going to go set up a simultaneous lab for three times the amount of money that he's pocketing in China. And we have no strings attached to the money that says that there's no uh, intellectual property that's owned by the U.S. government that it has to be. It's this like academic free for all, and it's just good for the development of the you know the civilized world. And then you go like, oh well, what about the money that's coming out of right. American pockets? Right. right. They don't. They don't seem to care about that. So you yeah, you talk about like terrible, terrible policy that just seems to be endemic to the the whole governmental structure. Like they don't see the the end game for some reason. Right. No, in a way, China is doing with us like what we did to countries in Europe after World War II. And, and, you know, this kind of soft power projection via economic, you know, economic soft power. I mean, then the, the whole thing is, is, is totally upside down. But, you know, one of the things that I've, I've also been trying to, like, emphasize is, you know, the, you know, the fire is inside the house. Like, it's, you know, they're, they're, whatever the phrase is, the call is coming from inside. But, I know it's, like, a cliche to say. But, but, but it's true. But, you know, it is... It is not China or Russia who is, um, you know, who is doing what the Department of Homeland Security did to censor 
the 2020 election, the 2022 midterms, or COVID-19. It's not, you know, like, it, we adopted ourselves a so-called whole-of-government, whole-of-society approach to censorship. When, after the Mueller investigation fell apart in, in 2019, we had all of this censorship infrastructure that was created to take on Russia and China. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was after the 2016 election when there was these these totally unsubstantiated claims about Russian you know, interference with the election. And, uh, and I, I, I remember reading the CIA memo the day it came out on, in, on, on, in January, 2017, it was a 15 page memo. It was the very first, uh, allegation of Russian interference with the election. And the entire thing was devoid of, of any factual claims, except the appendix at the very end, which only said that it was Russia, that Russia today and Sputnik were getting higher engagement than than the BBC and other like comparable. It was, now this is no. There was nothing about bot farms or trolls or or anything. It was literally just there is you know Russia's equivalent of the BBC is is doing well on Facebook and Twitter. Right. That was all. The which C- could mean anything. Which could mean it's like a single data point, but right. it doesn't. But it doesn't tell you intent. It doesn't tell you that there's nefarious action happening behind it. Right. And none of the bots were ever for forensically authenticated. In fact, the only bots that we know of for sure that were Russian in origin were the ones by Democrat operatives like New Knowledge LLC run by D- Rene DeResta, funded by Reed Hoffman, the same guy who just funded the Trump uh, rape rape lawsuit. Um, Is when, that who paid for that? Yes. Reed Hoffman, the LinkedIn founder. And, you know, the LinkedIn. So, yeah. So I remember Dan Bongino a couple of days ago was going off about this guy, um, Hoffman. Seems like a real interesting cat. Yeah, he funded New Knowledge. New Knowledge got busted for, for in their own words, orchestrating an elaborate false flag operation to paint Roy Moore as a Russian operative. That's their words. That was their own words because they fundraised off the success of it. Of they claimed they, they tilted the course of the that the special runoff election in in uh, November uh, 2017, which which caused a whole tailspin at the White House, by the way, because there was a big power struggle about whether to support support Roy Moore because of some of his other controversies. Right. Um, and that was a- Which was seemed a, legit. But. Right. But it was, it was a hair, it was a razor tight election mm-hmm. that, that a, a Democrat dark arts political operative firm claimed credit for tilting because of a, a series of news cycles about Roy Moore being backed by Russians because this firm, in their own words, purchased fake Russian bot accounts. They bought a Russian bot farm that simulated- uh, a, a server from Russia with 23,000 bot accounts that they mass subscribed to Roy Moore's Twitter and Facebook over a single weekend and then ran that they laundered, they subscribed to it themselves. They had operational control over this Russian bot farm, which was, it was just their own bots logging in from a, from a VPN to, from, from Russia to just appear Russian. And then they gave the story to the, to their, their friends in the media to, and didn't say, oh, these are our Russian bots. Right. They just said these are Russian the bots. Yes, exactly. So Got then it. Roy Moore is painted as a Russian. They also created fake race, uh, face, uh, fake Facebook pages for Roy Moore where where they claimed in, in fake Russian – I'm sorry, in fake Facebook pages that Roy Moore was running on a plank of banning alcohol. This is in Alabama. You know, so everything that they accused the Russians of doing – the only thing we know for sure happened is that they did it. So they, but they took that infrastructure. And you're, and you're seeing this at the White House or you're seeing this at state? Well, I saw that at, well, I, what I saw at state was what I refer to as the foreign to domestic switcheroo, 
which is that they took all of this infrastructure set up to stop a fake threat from from foreign countries. And I'm not saying it's fake in a hypothetical sense. It's but it has not been forensically validated. To yes. this day, it is an unsubstantiated claim and and at best completely overblown. When they when they do intel reports, they usually give like a degree of confidence, high, medium, or low. Where would you say that this lands in your opinion of like the confidence that it's happening, that it's foreign actors that are doing this sort of infiltration? We see that there's a possibility of it. Is there a low confidence that it's happening? There's no ability to assess or something lower than the than the lowest possible low. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> now we know that it's done by allies. Sure. Like like we're talking five eyes kind of yeah five okay. eyes yeah that's it's, 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 it's a fair way to put it um and that you know it, it's hard to say that it's it's um you know even when it's done it's sort of mission critical nefarious like there's these influence operations are done every day by every country that's got the capacity mm-hmm. but to this day there has never been a validated weapons grade highly influential thing from a foreign adversary and frankly, you can see how if they actually did that and got caught, it would be hugely discrediting and would. Like you could there are so many other means of creating those influence campaigns than these kind of crude bot, you know, sort of things that can be traceable from their from their coordination. It, yeah, it would destroy credibility of whatever the source was. It would end up being sort of like the martyr effect, but like the reverse of it. It's like, oh, you're trying to influence us. It's gonna get American opinion, because we're kind of an ornery bunch, right? Right. We'll, we'll go the opposite way with it. And we'll even if we would otherwise agree with them, we might be even more angry about it. Right. And but, you know, the fact is, is the is the it was all of this domestic censorship is the fruit of a poison tree. Okay. They use this fake scandal to create very real infrastructure mm-hmm. on the foreign side. And then as soon as the foreign predicate ran out, when when the Russia probe ended in July 2019, in September 2019 is when the U.S. government declared their whole of government, whole of do- whole of society. Doctrine. This is July to September. Yeah, it took two months, basically, you know, for for them to turn. And again, this infrastructure involved the intelligence community, the Defense Department, the State Department, all working hand in glove yep. at a at a personnel level, at a funding level, with every single major tech company in the United States: Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Reddit, Twitch. Every single one of them had trust and safety teams working working to stop so-called foreign disinformation. Right. When what the, was the buy-in looking like from the from maybe the private sector and then also the government sector that you saw? Were people on board? They were like, yep, this is what we're about? Or it was they- totalizing. It was totalizing. And part of this was, you know, these tech companies were under threat of regulation. Right. They were being That was the Mark Warner thing saying, hey, it's an awful nice, uh, nice business you got there. It'd be a shame if we had to put some costly regulations right. exactly, on it. Exactly. Exactly. Right? And, and then what was the carrot part of it for them? Well, they didn't. I'll, I'll, I would say, other than one and a half possible CEOs, you know, they didn't want Trump anyway. You know, it was not like the, they had to. They had to. Their arms had to be twisted on the content moderation specifics. But ideologically, you know, Google the day after the the 2016 election. That was November 8th, 2016. On November, that was a Thursday. The, the day after, the, Google hosted this TGIF, thank God it's Friday town hall, Okay, where, um, you know, uh, every single C-suite officer of Google was up on the stage telling, you know, telling the rest of, of the entirety of Google about what they were going to do to stop the Trump administration. Famously, Ruth Porat, who made, I think, $44 million or $25 million a year as a base salary. Why not? Was up on stage. She was a chief financial officer crying on stage because Hillary lost and then asked all of the Google employees at this meeting, this is all on video, to do a, to hug the person next to them 
to comfort them yeah. from Trump winning the election. Well, it was hard. What was Van Zandt going to say? What was his name? Van Jones? What was he going to say to his kids? You know, it's like, it's very hard to understand how this happened in America. Right. So a lot of them wanted to, you know, do what they could anyway, um, you know, in order to, you know, rig the deck politically. But the specifics of it were much more than even a lot. Like, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg wanted to go down the road as hard as he, as he ultimately ended up doing. And part of that was because Facebook was threatened with antitrust, they were they were threatened with with major lawsuits. There were ad boycotts that cost them tens of billions of dollars when they refused that was to B, billions with a B. Yeah, with a B. In fact, I think it was. I'm, you look this up. I think it was sixty billion. This is a huge number, but it was, it was something like sixty billion dollars of revenue on the line from a boycott. Of, I think it was called Change the Terms, uh, which was this you know mass boycott organized by. Color of Change, ADL, uh, the leadership uh, uh, project. These are all left groups that are just saying, hey, Trump's Trump, orange man bad. It was a combination of left-wing groups and U.S. government-funded NGOs adding their pressure to it. Perfect. Um, you know, which is kind of like the recipe here. You've got the national security state who's got essentially the firepower to do it with opportunistic political operatives, primarily from the neoliberal Democrat wing and the neocon wing of the Republicans uh, to create this, you know, so-called bipartisan, you know, cracked. I mean, <laughs> right, from the uniparty. Right, exactly. Yeah, as as you know. everybody gets to see. I'm going to pivot just for a second because I think we're going to hone in on this spot. One of the things that I've been making the argument of is that the domestic terrorist sort of uh, rundown, which I think is very, very closely related to what they're doing with censorship, has been a, a foreign capability. We are looking at international terrorism. The FBI is obviously the front for that domestically, but there are other agencies in the IC that do it. We've got foreign terrorism. We run out of foreign terrorism because our military is over there, you know, jacking things up and burning things and breaking things like they do. Then we start looking at HVEs, which was a pivot to homegrown violent extremists. Yep. That's foreign ideology, but locally based. And then you run out of those two pretty easily because there's not a lot of people that want to do that in this country once they get here. And then we started looking in our own house. So we said, screw it. So all of the power of the foreign intelligence and the, you know, the the foreign terrorist apparatus is now directed to domestic yep. violent extremists yep. where we are today. It sounds like a very similar sort of pivot happened with the same tools. And you said it took two months for them to basically exactly. do that. Exactly. It's not just the same playbook. It's the same players. This, you know, what, what you're referring to there is, is this basically counterinsurgency. You know, so they, you know, they, they, you know, we've got counterterrorism. But, you know, sort of a lot of people, when they say counterterrorism, they put sort of like a uh, a dash and then they say counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. And counterinsurgency is a slightly different thing than counterterrorism mm-hmm. because counterterrorism is when it's when it's violent, you know, when people die and whatnot. Counterinsurgency is simply the U.S. government's coordinated efforts to stop the rise of a political movement that is threatening uh, entrenched U.S. interests. Yeah, their preferred policies versus whatever the organic local policies may be or some sort of resistance policies. Right. The U.S. will install a, a president or a dictator or a government overseas. And that that installed leader will do things that are favorable to, um, you know, Western stakeholder interests. Sure. Um, and oftentimes that makes the native indigenous people in the country very unhappy Oftentimes, it's their own natural resources now flowing to foreign direct investors from Wall Street in London, rather to the people than the people living in, you know, 
Indonesia or Bolivia or Zambia, you name sure. it. And we spent all that money putting that guy in. He better do what right. he wants. So right? if a political group starts to rise in power to challenge an installed U.S. leader, we whip into gear our counterinsurgency folks who basically work to stop the rise of a political threat abroad through a number of means, including you know, censorship of all their media organs, okay. uh, demonization of that group within within the public. You know, this is where we break out, you know, our State Department and USAID funded NG, you know, NGOs, media organizations, information and messaging campaigns that yeah. are, uh, you know, favorable to right. our interests exactly. and against whatever that right. uh, insurgent is. Right. The insurgent, which may actually just be local people right. trying to do something local. Right. Who, are tr- who are basically trying to take a, you know, a ex-country first version in their own country, like mm-hmm. sort of like the America first, you know, uh, you know, any sort of nationalist. Um, so the, the U.S. government historically, uh, the way our sort of neoliberal international financial enterprise works is that we, we tend to bust up any foreign government that uh, invokes either sort of a nationalist or a communist, um, uh, you know, foreign uh, internal structure with respect to their own wealth or foreign policy uh, posture, we, mm-hmm. because you know our our trick is that we will, we privatize their assets. So if their own government holds them, uh, that means that they can't be profitable to London and Wall Street investors. And so w- when when a country tries to put its own interests first, we will send in the counterinsurgency squad to stop to, that political party from rising to power there. So what's so terrifying to me about one of the things among many uh, about the the censorship industry to me is that at the high level at the thought leadership level at the funding level at the coordination level mm-hmm. you see this same mafia essentially from the counterinsurgency world abroad and i don't think that i had a problem with it on the foreign side until it came home you could you can make the argument the world is a very tough place it's a very cold place if we don't do that then China will, Russia will, Iran will. Um, you can make the argument that we need a very full-throated, red-blooded, aggressive Department of Dirty Tricks overseas. The moment that comes home, though, all bets are off because then we is, don't even decide on what's happening you know, overseas. It's We're just being run by this. Is that the way that we should be looking at AI too, though? Because it's, it's essentially like you created the tool, it's available, and then eventually it's gonna be used on you. And it's the same idea of creating the, you know, the Department of Dirty Tricks. I like that, by the way, I might steal that from you. But having a Department of Dirty Tricks inevitably means at some point there's gonna be something unfavorable at home and they're gonna to have to use it. Right. So by developing these things and using them overseas for our interests, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time until somebody domestically, which in this case turned out to be the America First types, the sort of locally nationalist individuals, now they're on the target list because they're not, yeah, because they don't want the global regime or whatever, right, right. whatever reasons you want to call right. it. I think a lot of people that are listening to this are going to be like, oh, they, they've decided to target me because those are my beliefs. Right. And we know that's true. And we've seen it now on every single level, whether it be federal law enforcement, whether it be intelligence, and then you're talking about censorships. Yeah. These, are, these are all the same tools that when they're overseas, they're fine. But we should be really careful about that, right? Because immediately they get turned on us, all, like in two months, right? No, you're you, you're totally. That's totally true. Um, is it a matter of time? So this is why I. Well, stress- I guess the question is, how do you have guardrails to make right. it so that those things are only overseas? Because those don't seem like a terrible thing for us. Well, those guard- interest-wise, those guardrails were initially put in place by the 1947 National Security Act when we created the the 
the national security state after World War II. You know, everything was sort of a goop before then. You know, you had a even the FBI was only formed in the in the run up to World War One. Right. Um, you know, we had a Justice Department for fifty years before, but you know, uh, bef- before that, operating without any sort of domestic intelligence um, apparatus. We had, um, uh, y- you know, we had an OSS, an Office of of, of Special Services, essentially uh, that was at- operated like a proto CIA. And they had Black Cauldron, which was kind of proto uh, NSA, right? Right. Isn't that what it's called? Yeah, well, Black Cauldron. Well, uh, is that the name of it? We, I'm, I'm not. There's a great okay, so there's a great book you can read it in about 45 minutes. I'm, I could just guess how fast you can read. Uh, it's by a guy named Herbert O'Yardley, who was a professional poker player. Okay. I think of the fun strategy games. Chess is obviously the classic one, and when it comes to the people games, I think poker is one of the good ones. And he wrote this book. It's called The Education of a Poker Player. Uh-huh. It's about him growing up in the old west and like going through these old poker halls and yeah. becoming a pro. And then he becomes a spy yeah. because he has the skill set to go and read people. And yeah. he learns Chinese, of course, because uh-huh. like that's what normal people did who grew up in like gunfighters, sure. gunfighter worlds. But um, if, if my memory serves, and maybe somebody will correct us in the uh, in the comments here, I think it's called The Black Cauldron. And it was the predecessor to sort of the sort of code breaking oh, sort of NSA type things. So like you say, a goop, right. a messy sort of mix of it wasn't coordinated. It wasn't a community of people that shared information. They were all kind of siloed right. doing their thing. Because everything was, you know, it wasn't even called the Defense Department then. It was called the Department of War. Which I love, by the way. That's so <laughs> that's so transparent. No. That's what it does. It should, it should still be called the Department I of would, War. That would be the first move that Trump could really win me back with if he said, look, I'm going to go back to honesty, right. transparency and government. Forget, yeah, Department of Statecraft, if you want to call it. It's not the Department of State. The state is something else. This is the Department of Statecraft, and this is the Department of War. And what do we do? We export violence. Right. That's what people sign up to do. Right. And then if you want to have a Department of Defense that only does defense. That's what Homeland Security is supposed to be. That's so true. That's that's the Department of Defense in reality. Right. They're all, we're full of misnomers and absurdities. Right. Right. No, it's like we're talking about some future 1984 situation. We are... We've we, we have reversed, you know, the, in what 1984 it was the you know the Ministry of Truth was for lies, the Ministry of Love was we, for we like, are that yeah we literally, literally flipped the Department of, of War to the Department of Defense that just like you're saying because yeah, it, it should, sells nicely it's like oh but we're not warlike it's like yes we are how do you think America became such a dominant player it went into a war right not on our continent by the way right twice and was highly successful and then also built massive businesses. The whole military industrial complex came out of that. It's a huge industry, you know, trillions of dollars, I have to imagine, worldwide for defense funding, right? Right. But all because we made up a fake name. Right. Like that, not because, but that's part of the game is that we sold it as defense. It's like, no, it's not the defense industry. It's the violence industry. Trump should totally run on like just changing just it back. Straight to, radical transparency. You know, when he said that about Syria, when he, when he said, well, why are we still in Syria? For the oil. He said, we're taking the oil. It's like, okay, all right. Well, That's honest. Yeah, it's like, it was honest. What if so, he said that about Iraq? People would have been like, nah, I'm not crazy about it, but I understand why we all have a car. Right. You're not on a bicycle, are you? Right. No, right. <laughs> that's why we're that's why we're in other third world nations because we want, you know, rare earth minerals right, and exactly. so on for for batteries. And it's like, let's but, be honest. But let's then that allows it. us to have an honest debate about whether or not the, you know, the, the revenues generated by the oil offsets the expenditures on the military and you know, it allows us to yeah, have the an blood honest and the treasure right. because there's people who put their lives on it. And there are some people exactly. in this country that would be it's like, look, if you tell me what I'm signing up for and I'm continuing our way of life, and part of that is based on a, p- a petrol product, right? there are some people that don't hate that idea. And also, they just want to get violent anyway. Like, I know how many how many guys were in like their early 20s that are just pissed, right? Right? Right. That's that's why the military used to exist. It's like, oh, you're really mad? You want to go right. break stuff somewhere? 
I have a job for you, Marine. You know? Well, you know. And, and I'm not mad at them. I've got a lot of those friends. No, look, I feel the same way about the CIA, which is that, you know, like the censorship industry is almost dominated by like by by CIA uh, you know, veterans and institutional connections. Sure. Uh, the domestic censorship industry. And this is one of these things where it's, you know, it's it's something that's difficult to talk about because, you know, you're not calling to like necessarily shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces. Uh, you know, when when you say it, uh, you know, you sort of there, there's a school of thought that is perhaps reasonable that says, listen, you, you do need these psychopathic liars because otherwise they're just going to be out there in bars like picking up women and using their their, their, their interpersonal skills doing that like you might as well put them to work somewhere right. good well right well, the, the, well this is the idea part of, of the human spectrum right right exactly and like there is a they could do useful things for american interests by being deployed against our adversaries you know it's almost like releasing a virus if you will i mean i don't mean to say uh, no but let, let's just agree that there are human beings that want to operate in sort of a moral gray area right they're right. operational morality types they're going to be doing this anyway right There's, so if you could put them to give them you know a a mission set and tasking that's beneficial for the for the greater good at least in, on our end of things we're, we're all sort of okay with that idea that i mean that's that's what the military does too it right. hurts hurts things you're like well do you want this guy like tearing up nashville do you right. want this guy out there like somewhere in alabama like ruining tuscaloosa no right. we want to send right. this guy over wherever else he's not going to bother like send him down to latin america to go cause problems or whatever right yeah i mean this is like sort of like the a few good men you know those walls are guarded by men with guns it's but, like yeah we, there is a place for that the problem is, sure. is it's not in our house it used to be the frontier right, right. Yeah. Historically. Right, right. Yeah. Because that's what people do. They'd be like, oh, you want risk and wild opportunities and right. rewards and no rules? Right. We have a place like that. Right. The it's frontier. called Montana. Right. Right. It's called Alaska. Right. It, it used to be called California, California actually, historically, right? <laughs> right? That's where people went. Right. And that's how you end up with some of these wild, uh, you know, gunfighter stories and all this other kind of stuff. But it's, and then immediately that that happens, there's people trying to tame it. Right. 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 No, that's true. <laughs> but we need, we need a firewall between the foreign and domestic. Sure. If, you don't. You, we can sidestep all of those thorny issues about you know how real the counterintelligence threat is from Russia, China. How real the threat of foreign influence operations. Those those are difficult debates about what the counter, relative countermeasures are. But the first thing you can do that will solve ninety five percent of the problem immediately is if you can just reassert the foreign to domestic firewall that you know arguably well arguably existed in this country for. You know, um, for for a decent period, you know, the, up, up till September 11, thousand one, probably is probably one of at least very strong delineations and jump offs, right? Well, there's a fascinating history with it because you made a point earlier that it's sort of inevitable that if you create these weapons, you know, both on the AI thing and then also on the censorship side, uh, that if you create these weapons, these weapons, it's only a matter of time that they'll be used inward. You know, even if they're created for outward purposes, and. My thoughts immediately went to CIA malfeasance in the 1960s and 70s because, you know, you, you had this 1947 act that that gave the CIA the power to operate in a cloak and dagger fashion under a doctrine of so-called plausible deniability. Right. You know, they could they could you know, lie, cheat and steal in the words of my former boss, Mike Pompeo. You know, they could they could lie, cheat and steal. They could frankly murder. They uh you know, and assassinate foreign leaders. They could do anything as long as they were not caught doing it. You know, they had to be, you know, it was, the doctrine of plausible deniability was that the U.S. State Department wanted to do something, but it was too dirty to be caught doing. Right. So the CIA would be given a, 
you know, blank check. They would coordinate with the State Department through the Office of Policy Coordination. Which is probably why they still exist out of embassies, right? Like they right. need a footprint to operate up. Right. What did you call them? The, the Dirty Trick Squad? Yeah, the, the Department of Dirty Tricks. That, that's actually yeah. a name that came from, I believe, um, uh, what was it? Mm, was it Bill Donovan? It was one of like the, the that's not my phrase. That no, phrase surely, actually came, surely not. came but, from one of like the, the progenitors. But I think everyone kind of understands that there is a potential need for that sort of thing. Right. And as long as it stays where it's allowed to play. As long as they don't get caught. As right. long as they deny what they did. As yep. long as they lie about it and don't get caught, then they're, then they're, they're authorized. In fact, they're, they're ordered to do it by the National Security Council. Right. So, so that, I mean, it's one of these things where these are, professional liars and professional deniers of what they're actually doing. <laughs> and like, okay, there, you can argue there's a place for that because it's a mean old world out there and we need to, you know, a good offense is the best defense. Sure. But that's like having, you know, a rabid pit bull, Rottweiler, orca whale dragon, you know, uh, to defend your house in the, you know, this junkyard dog. It's got to stay outside. Right. That but, thing can't or, come in. It can't in come in the backyard with, where we're having a barbecue either. Right, right. But it, but there's a hole in the fence. But now you've got CIA officers who are the heads of the trust and safety teams at yes. both Google and Facebook. You've got, you know, you've got uh, them basically, you know, running, uh, you know, veterans of it running uh, the the DHS's deputized uh, disinformation squad. You've got the, you know, the the Atlantic Council is, you know, is part of that, which is basically Biden's network that got a blank check to censor the 2020 election and the pandemic with seven former CIA directors currently yeah. on their board. Um, I mean, there's you know, the, the basically running Graphica, the, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 narr- the domestic social media narrative mapping, you know, their, their chief strategy officer who effectively. And they want to the get place. into your encrypted apps too. Yeah. Well, like, that's, they, they've out openly said it now. There's, you know, leaked calls from them saying like, Hey, we got to really figure out how to handle Real privacy, because we can't have right. privacy if we're going to really censor everybody. We got to censor thoughts because they're always going upstream. And that also started on the foreign side. Okay, the encrypt the censorship of encrypted uh, chats started because in 2019, 20, late twenty eighteen, early twenty nineteen, uh, around the elections of Bolsonaro in Brazil and Modi. In was India. this going after WeChat? No, this was going. This was going. Oh, this is going after WhatsApp. No, yeah, WhatsApp. Sorry, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. well, they were also doing that for a lot of narco trafficking. Well, so they had so they had a law enforcement nexus to it too. Right. And so they're like, well, we got narco trafficking, we got to be able to stop drugs, and that's antithetical to American interests, drugs right. coming in, whatever. Right, right. And there's a lot of money, and that's how they coordinate. Right. And and it was always historical. It's like, oh, you use WhatsApp, what are you a drug dealer? Right. Right? Right. Even domestically. They even use that in the January 6th case. They use the fact that people use signal. They actually put you know, because to prove conspiracy. You know, you need to you need to take an affirmative step in furtherance of the of the conspiracy. And, and one of those is the, hiding your mechanism of. They said the mere use of signal as an as of encrypted chat is a is a is an act of 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 a furtherance of conspiracy because you took steps to hide right. you know what you were doing. Even though that's just basic privacy, like even using iMessage in theory right. is encrypted. Oh, the data in motion is supposed to be encrypted. Mm-hmm. So even using like that's that's basic to an iPhone. But they can they subpoena that though, or, or like can they get those records from like if AT&T? you store them on the iCloud? Okay. So I mean, so as a privacy thing, this is something I worry about all the time, and I, I you know, people are always I get DMs where people are like, "What's the best encrypted app?" I'm like, "Dude, I don't know. Like, right. I, like I can't keep up." Right. I know I use Signal. I know right. that's a, a functional thing. I know the U.S. government does. But end of the day, anything that's encrypted should keep your data in motion. Good. Right. But the vulnerable points are always the end. Right. Right. The phone. Right. 
But being able to say that signal was the reason that you're part of a conspiracy. I'm part of a lot of conspiracies, apparently, right. and I know you are too. Right. It's like, come on, That's guys. Incredible. You're killing us. But, but that, anyway, okay, so so WhatsApp is being used. You said they're they're targeting the governmental movements there. So what happened was is, some more here. is the, wanna, wanna uh, the oh, oh yeah, that'd be great. So so the censorship industry gets set up between between January 2017 and late 2018. You already have these mass waves of censorship. In fact, this is one of the reasons that one of the some of the first. Uh, uh, mass user bases of gab the alternative you know speech platform that was created yep. you know back in like 20 2018 i think which was always being uh you know mismarketed to people like through the mainstream media as like being a neo-nazi place and like wherever all the fascists were right just because they could say what they wanted i but guess one of their biggest markets was brazil hmm. because by by late 2018 the censorship industry was already so extensive in terms of their 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 banning of of ordinary speech at the time they were using predicates like hate speech and things like this. Sure, um, this is before just blanket misinformation became became a, a low enough bar for it. Um, but there were so many millions of Bolsonaro supporters who had been banned from Facebook and Twitter and YouTube that they were some of the earliest adopters of alternative platforms. And the same thing was happening to these so-called Hindu nationalists as part of the BJP party in India. And so social media censorship was already so intense by late 2018 that there was a rush to end and encrypted uh, private chat apps like WhatsApp and Telegram in order to recreate the equivalent of what they had on Facebook pages and Twitter forums on, um, uh, on social media because they were – so. The only reason end-to-end -end -end encrypted chat ended up getting targeted is because they had already kicked these people. You know, it's like Exodus. They had already been, you know, kicked out of out of you know the promised land of social media. So they went to the next one of end-to-end -end encrypted chat. And then when Modi got reelected and Bolsonaro won in Brazil, there was a five-alarm fire at the Atlantic Council, which again is NATO's think tank, seven CIA directors on the board, as well as the entire DHS cabal there. Yeah. Um, you know one of the biggest ba uh, networks backing uh, backing Biden. Biden won, you know, this distinguished award there in 2014. They basically coordinate U.S.-Ukraine policy mm -hmm. um, and are a big part of the – they're funded by the energy sector, the the mil military contractors, and, and basically – widespread NATO. U.S. Uh, and Western interests. Right. Running and the U.S. State Department, Defense Department, Department of Energy, USAID, and the National Endowment for Democracy. So we we pay them to, to censor and destroy us, basically. Wonderful. Um, but – so they held a series of consensus built stakeholder consensus meetings after those two elections in India and Brazil, where they called for uh, for basically the mass censorship of end-to-end -end encrypted chat because this was now the escape valve for political populist parties around the world um, after they'd already achieved the success of censoring social media. Okay. And so the first thing they did is they hauled in Facebook. And they they brought in a bunch of Facebook representatives. Facebook is also the biggest one of the, I think the seventh biggest funder of the Atlantic Council. And the Atlantic Council is it, it got their own guys into Facebook. For example, uh, Ben Nimmo, who who previously ran the censorship operations at the Atlantic Council, um, is now the head of global threat intelligence at Facebook. Nathan um, 
There's a bunch of these guys. But this is all what I've always called sort of the information industrial complex. I thought I actually came up with that idea, but it came back up in like 2014. There were position papers about it. Mm. But that's what we're seeing, right? In real time, we're seeing people leave the information business within the Intel sphere Mm. or within the social medias, and they're going into the think tanks that are doing Mm. sensors, and then vice versa. There's this like open doorway coming back and forth because that's where the big money is in that industry. Yeah. Yep. That's the whole of society. You know, it's government, private sector, civil society, and news media and fact checking all fused into the cell of essentially a single atom. You know, it's a seamless web and they just rotate jobs between those. You know, when you leave government, you go directly into, you know, sort of the equivalent job that you were liaisoning with in the private sector there. Gross. what happened is, is, so the first thing they did is they went after WhatsApp because WhatsApp was owned by Facebook and they already had their tentacles. That's what I didn't realize. That's why they got them. And so the first thing they did is right after the Bolsonaro election is they got WhatsApp to shut to, uh, the main thing they were afraid of is that what's, WhatsApp and, and Telegram allowed mass communication where you could have tens of thousands of people who are getting their news essentially from a channel, you know, like a, cha- a WhatsApp channel or a yep. Telegram channel. And, um, you know, so so the first thing they did is they shut down, they, they, they vastly limited the size of any particular channel, you know, to basically balkanize the entire app. Because they don't want the whole country getting a single feed. Right. Because that, that was the magic of social media. Because the internet existed long before social media. It's just everything was on decentralized blogs and forums. Mm-hmm. But when all of those people in those blogs and forums congregated on a single, single app, it allowed a particular, it, it allowed you know, a supercharged narrative to instantly be be formed. It was almost, you know, like all the magnets of, you know, went into alignment uh, on a particular narrative or meme or response to, you know, a Kyle Rittenhouse shooting. Now everyone can sort of believe the same thing because if one particular line of argument or meme or video is so engaging, everyone will see it because on a centralized platform, it's, it's instantaneous. It, You're it's, saying engaging, but I believe like even compelling is probably the thing because right. people go, oh, that, that aligns with what I believe actually happened right. from what I saw. Right. Or this government is evil and it's doing these things and you get Arab Spring or you get any of these right. sort of things because we'd already seen it been used that way. Right. Right. Uh, we, and we'd seen that happen overseas. And obviously they were, <laughs> they didn't want that happening yeah. here. Yeah. It's so gross. So, so first they, you know, they, they chopped up the, you know, the capacity for any particular channel so that the whole thing became balkanized. Okay. And then they forced WhatsApp. And I mean, like literally forced, like threatened, like litigation, threatened regulation, threatened in, in Brazil. They actually, they actually threatened to ban WhatsApp. They, they just recently banned Telegram for the second time over this is they, they got WhatsApp to limit the number of shares uh, per day. And this is all done in the name of stopping mis- right-wing misinformation. And this is all not visible to the external user necessarily. Well, they passed that as a terms of service uh, change. Would do so that it but used, nobody reads those, right? But 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 you would but people would in that case people did find out because you know previously you could share a hundred things a day. And a lot of people use Twitter like you know they'll post like fifty times a day if they're super users or yep. whatever. But they limited to just five shares a day mm. uh, of like five things you could forward to a friends and family because they they said that local trust in in family and friends was undermining trust in, in global institutions. Trusting the people that you know yes. is undermining the trust in the people that are so far distant yes. from you, then they have better ideas. Yes, obviously. that's literally the argument they made. They said- But that's the fundamental argument of censorship anyway. It's like, we know better than you. Let us help curate your thoughts. Right, right. Which is- no, they, they literally, So the Atlantic Council in 2019 was literally made the argument that um, you know, people are trusting their own clergy at church and their own mothers and fathers more than they trust- um, 
democratic institutions, which is their which is their catch-all for saying captured media, you know, basically backdoors to the national security state and media cutouts, um, or you know, these multilateral institutions like um, you know the hive mind of of alphabet soup. You know, folks right. that, that we're all familiar I mean, with. and so you always hear these people talk about, oh, did the church commission work? You know, is Operation Mockingbird still ongoing? Things like this. And essentially, a lot of these things have just, they've taken a new name. They've taken a new group of players. But we're seeing two or three or 4.0 versions of them ongoing. And everybody knows it now. Right. And everyone's sort of negotiating against a a, a far, you know, deeper status quo that we're just, we're entrenched in this stuff. Like, you and I grew up in a time when government censorship was far less and nobody would have expected it to be normal. Like if you picked up your phone, you would have no expectation that somebody is listening to your call. Right, right. But right now you would have minimal expectation of that not being possible. Right. Whether or not it's happening or not is another animal. Right. right? Like we just we just assume you're like, oh, yeah, they're probably listening to me. That's weird in 20 years to have gone that far. Internet freedom changed everything because on, you know, the moment people could become their own publishers it allowed the creation of narratives that could that could not be stopped by gatekeepers and so a new class of digital gatekeepers had to be you know this stuff existed in the analog era you know as you mentioned with you know mockingbird and a, a million other you know initiative i mean i've said this many times before but you know the the entire mainstream concept of mainstream media in america was an outgrowth of the office of war information from dod because in World War II, the War Department rolled up. You know, we had this mass uh, mobilization for COVID. You know, where you know the the all the production capacities were you know rolled into you know yep. responding to this uh, whole society effort. I mean, there's the same thing happened in World War II. It, it, the media was onboarded into the, into the effort. You know, proto Hollywood. Uh, you yeah, know, they were making the, those films. They were showing clips before movies. Like, yeah. you know, this is before our time, obviously, but we know what happened. And all of the major, every single major media institution in this country was born out of the Office of War Information. The ABC, NBC, and CBS, which were the three network news, broadcast network news uh, uh, organizations, the only three news channels for the entirety of the Cold War, were all started by veterans of the Office of War Information. They were all DOD guys. Time Magazine. Uh, I mean, the... The 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 Soulsberger family's you know relationship, um, the 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 the, the, the Grams, all of them they 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 all had this back channel, their editorial desks, stories could be killed, narratives could be quashed, uh, and at the time there was no you couldn't be your own publisher. The problem was is when Internet Freedom happened, it allowed Mr. Beast. To be, you know, to, huge. To, yeah, to potentially be more influential than the Department of Defense's, you know, media cutout, and the the implications for the quote rules based international order. You know, the implications for NATO in that world um, were were existential because at, at the time in 2016, Brexit had just happened, and this mm. is before Brexit had its sort of controlled soft landing by yep. by NATO. At the time, they were concerned Brexit was going to give rise to Frexit in France with Marine Le Pen, Italy exit with Matteo Salvini in Italy, Grexit in Greece, Spexit in Spain. And, and It would destroy the European Union. Which would destroy NATO, which would destroy the IMF and the World Bank, which would destroy the international finance system. So, so and people were voluntarily voting for Nigel Farage, they were, you know, in, in Brexit, voluntarily voting for Donald Trump. Marine Le Pen was neck and neck. Salvini, Salvini had just risen to power. Yep. They, there were NATO white papers in, in, in early 2017 
that said the biggest threat to the to to NATO is not foreign hostilities from Russia. It is internal right-wing political populist movements rising organically to power through the use of alternative through uh, uh, backed by the popularity of alternative news. The and alternative national, news is just whatever people want to yeah, actually they said, publish. They said, you know, independent, independent journalism. Right. It was it was this robust um, uh, network of of popularizing narratives through social media freedom and through upstart, you know, news that was challenging, um, you know, basically whatever could be thrown at and funding from the State Department. <laughs> and so that became, you know, the biggest threat to the national security state was the, the the political opinions people held on their heads because in a democracy, if that's you know the hearts you know the, the the elected government is the product of the hearts and minds of what people believe. And so the that was there were there were bumper you know there were guardrails on what people could believe for the entirety of the Cold War because you can only believe what you read and see and then make your own opinions about. And there was no apparatus to get anything else out. You, and you could never go too far. Even if you went a little bit out, you can never really build a totally cohesive worldview apartment because you simply couldn't compile enough news sources. You couldn't, you know, you, you couldn't really have a robust ideology apart from what the state wanted because this, the, because all media effectively was derivative or had a back channel to the state. So you can never go too far out when the concept of a sort of nationalist populist um, ideology, you know, uh, was had enough of a news media support system in 2016, because this was tried before. Mm -hmm. Pat Buchanan ran a very similar campaign in the early 90s, That's right. and was totally pilloried. And this was and this was before social media. Um, when when that snapped into place, you know, this uh, the national security state. You know, freaked out that the biggest threat was was alternative news, and so this is why you have a whole of government censorship response, and why it's emanating principally from DOD, state, DHS, and the national the national security state, with plus you know plus or minus political operatives from warmongering neocons and you know entrenched left wing energy interests. So what? Okay, so. And I know we're going to run up on our hard deadline because I want to make sure I'm respectful. You got places you got to be today too. Um, your foundation for Freedom Online, which you've mentioned, Freedom Online is such a, a big uh, part of the sort of pushback against this. You founded it. Um, what are the sort of the, the fundamental pillars that people can go and check out, and then tell them the website and kind of give people an idea of where they can come and follow you? Because you and I could do this probably for like 50 hours. Yeah, Every time I've talked I feel to you, like we're just getting warmed up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like we're just getting to where it's exciting. So hopefully we'll do this again. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, you're going out to California, so we'll do a, a remote on the next one, but uh, we could do this for as much as you want. So give me kind of some found, uh, foundation for freedom online. F F O. Yep. Um, tell it's spelled out all the way is, yep. is the, the yep. website. No hyphens, just foundation for freedom online.com. Okay. You know, our mission is to restore the promise of the free and open internet. Uh, what are the techniques that you guys are using? Well, so it's it's multi-front, you know. So so we're you know we do you know original reporting, uh, primarily focused on the government side of internet censorship, and really detailing you know what what we refer to as the censorship industry and the whole of society censorship model that is dismantled. So I would say chiefly our value proposition is that. Before we came along, a lot of people looked for censorship solutions in the form of Section 230 mm -hmm. and these kind of Hail Mary regulatory responses yep. uh, that tried to go for a headshot 
on, you know, to just take out everything at once. When I was in the White House, you know, and I was banging, I was doing my morning pilgrimage from the first to third floors, telling every single person I could that, you know, we needed to do something about internet censorship. Trump was on Twitter just all caps tweeting repeal section 230 and that was it and i was just hoping that you know that that was all we could do yeah and so ffo's framework is if you if you understand that censorship is not an act it's an industry and that industry has revenues it's got personnel it's got it's got you know interstitial connections between the government the private sector civil society the universities the nonprofits the news media the fact checking works then you no longer have to you know do a hail mary hope for the for a headshot to take the whole thing down, you can target the elbows, the knees, the shoulders, the joints. There's a, it's a large surface area. Okay. And every little bit that you can dismantle of this apparatus moves the ball forward towards freedom. And so, so, yeah, so nobody needs to go for the kill shot immediately. It's weakened, it's disabled, it's uh, slowly, you know, hack at it with small pocket knives and, and bleed it out as needed on and, all these little spots. And for the avoidance of doubt, this is a metaphor. Obviously, yeah, not you know, a there's, violent no, there's action, no animus towards any individual person sure. in this. In fact, many of them, I'm sure, are very fine people, but they are early stage operatives in a field that should not exist. We should not have, we cannot have a domestic censorship industry in this country, and especially not backed by, financed by, and coordinated by the U.S. federal government. And so FFO's job is to is to try to do everything we can to restore the internet to the promise of freedom and the operating conditions it had uh, during its golden age before, you know, the, the era of censorship set in. And... Um, you know, uh, we've had some great successes over the past year on a number of fronts, but uh, obviously there are many, many miles to, to go. And uh, this is an ever evolving field. And uh, in many ways, the, the the fight has not yet begun. <laughs> right. This is the warm up to the real fight, I right. think, in a lot of ways. Right. All right. People can follow you on Twitter at Mike Ben Cyber. And it's B-E-N-Z-M-I-K-E-B-E-N-Z Cyber spelled out C-Y-B-E-R. Um Great account, someone I follow. Um, definitely, I'll retweet things when comes up, things come up, and uh, I'm I'm very uh, appreciative that you spent some time with us this morning, folks. Thank this you. is the Kyle Serafin Show. You've been listening this morning uh, to our live stream with an in-studio guest, the first one. What a great guy to have in here! I want to say thanks to our sponsors. Um, we have CatholicVote.org. You can go to CatholicVote.org and see what they're up to. A fantastic organization about family, about faith, about freedom. And uh, they advocate for Christian positions in the political sphere. I think it's a fantastic group to do. I'm actually going to do their podcast later on today, which you'll probably see next week. And then we also have Patriot Coolers and PatriotCoolers.com. Another great organization supports our veterans, supports our show. You can use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, and get 10% off. Uh, anything over 50 bucks, it's always free shipping. Man, it's been wild. Uh, if you guys like what you're hearing, hit the, the like button. If you enjoyed this, you can always see us at 830 and that is in Texas America time. It'll be a much earlier time for you if we if we do another live, but we can always tape one. And uh, folks, if you enjoy what you heard, you can go to Apple. There's a link below in the description. Leave us a five-star review. We've got something like 425, almost 450 reviews. So we'll read one the next time. I am uh, very appreciative of Mike joining me. And we'll do this again real soon. If you guys have specific questions, by all means, put them in the comments. You can throw them in the live chat until we close it. And, uh, and I'll forward them along and I'll get some of those answers and we'll probably do them on Twitter. And you'll probably see Mike in a, in a Twitter space again soon because he and I like to, to bandy this stuff about and uh, just beat down anybody who has any questions that thinks that there's a doubt of this. <laughs> this is all very real, very scary and really important. 
Thanks so much. We'll see you guys again on Monday after the weekend. Awesome, man. Thank you. I meant to ask to Kyle Seraphin. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Seraphin.